Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, an animal advocacy radio show covering from conservation to animal rights and, importantly, appreciation. We are broadcast from the Melbourne, Australia studios of 3CR Independent Community Radio. Past shows, including part one of today's show, are available via the 3CR website, Freedom of Species webpage and also iTunes. This is part two of Rethinking the Ferals. It's a little bit of a friendly fight club for ferals via Skype where we go through each species and acknowledge and appreciate the role they play in the ecology, which benefits native animals also. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. I'm Charlie. I'm from Sydney Fox Rescue. We... Uh, as an organisation, won't stand by and let the government just decide that this animal's life is worth less than this other animal. And at at the end of the day, there are many introduced species in this country that we do consider to be valuable and that we do sort of really protect and that the law protects, like cats and dogs and livestock, um, for example. But then there's this other whole group of animals that are demonised as feral animals that are really being left behind and that nobody is looking out for. And that's, you know, animals like foxes and animals like deer and animals like hares and rabbits and pigs and there's only a limited amount of these species that we can legally work with but we're going to sort of do everything we can to advocate to change that over time and and to try and be a a safe haven and a refuge for animals that other organizations aren't there for and aren't sort of advocating on behalf of because Ultimately, these animals didn't come here by any choice of their own. These animals were brought here by our ancestors largely for hunting. Um, And now that they have actually survived and thrived in in this environment, we've now decided that that, only these sort of lethal and often ineffective control methods are the way to go and and sort of forgotten um, the necessity for humane treatment for all animals and not just for this selective group of animals that um, that we like, I guess. It's indeed a stretch for many of us to think beyond the language of pest, feral, introduced species, language that 
lends itself to a, a quick dismissal of any compassion or regard for the species in question and it imprisons them into this culture of excessive and cruel killing. You could go so far as to say this has become purposeful hate speech, enabling a system to really do with the species what they like with a kind of sinister social licence. Powers that be will protect this social licence. They will gag compassion and kindness, keeping the borders up in our inner landscape as well. This is playing out as we speak. In August of this year, Sydney Fox Rescue, as a condition of the new fox permits being granted to them by the local land services following the 2014 pest control order, were told they would no longer be able to share information or stories about foxes on social media or print media and attempt to force Sydney Fox Rescue and their fight for foxes into the shadows. They were also asked to remove their web pages from the internet. All fox owners granted permits are subject to the same restrictions. It appears they are really trying to gag Sydney Fox Rescue's work of spreading the contagion of, of kindness and compassion in a world that is, sorry, pardon the pun, but gagging for it. This has further ignited uh, innovation in Charlie's advocacy work and Charlie will be telling us about the launch of the Introduced Species Welfare and Education League later on in the program. Before we go on, I thought I'd play a little bit of audio from a show Freedom of Species did last year on 1080 Poison and Pests. We kill unwanted species, feral, pest or introduced, in the name of the protection of a native species, or animal agriculture. The methods are, to say, in the least, questionable. By trapping, shooting, poisoning, and we even use this excuse of excess population to justify what I call hate hunting for thrills and entertainment, as one can see with pig dogging or pig hunting. The torturous 1080 poison is used to kill dingoes, otherwise popularly referred to as wild dogs, and foxes. We use it extensively in national parks. Uh, many landowners use it. All animal welfare organisations around the world have stated it is an incredibly inhumane poison. This is what some farmers had to say about 1080 when I asked them. Hi, Emma. I'm Angus Emmett, and I'm on a big cattle place southwest of Longwich in western Queensland, right in the top end of the Channel Country. Can you tell us why you have opted not to use 1080 baiting on your property? Well, a number of reasons, Emma. Uh, one of our pet dogs was baited and that's a horrific experience to go through. Two, my wife and I just don't like chemicals. Uh, we milk our own cow and grow our veggies and fruit, etc., which we own meat and we don't use herbicides or pesticides and don't like having 1080 around because it's nasty stuff. But the other main reason, I guess, is the role that actual dingoes play in maintenance of biodiversity and also pastoral production values. What seems to be happening, and there's a lot of science supporting this as well, is that when you actually start mucking around and poisoning dingoes, you destroy the social structure. And they then, they don't have those uh, family groups operating properly and you get packs of younger dogs going around creating havoc like young fellas do. And are and they more prone to attack your Oh, oh definitely. They just go and 
do it for the fun of it, which is not doesn't tend to happen when you leave the dingoes alone. And when you've got those, and I should preface this by saying that this operates well in cattle country. Sheep and dingoes don't go together. There's a lot of work to be done there before that can happen. But in cattle country, you lose an odd calf here and there. But if you leave your dingoes alone, they form social structures and tend to keep other dingoes out. And the other thing they do is they keep the roo numbers down. They keep the goats down. They keep the rabbits down and pigs down. And probably most importantly of all is the actual cats and the foxes which have a huge impact on biodiversity. Economically, are you at a loss by not choosing to use the bait? I don't believe so. There's a number of things to factor in. One is the fact that when you do bait, you, first of all, you've got to find meat because most of the baiting done in this part of the world is just with meat baits. So you've got to find meat. You've got to have men to do that. You've got to, well, people to do that. You've also got to have the time to cut it up and then you pay to have aircraft to spread it around. I lose an odd calf to dingoes, but when you look at all the other benefits in particularly roos, kangaroos are really, really thick in this part of the world, and dingoes keep them down, but they get so thick that they eat a lot of your pasture. So you get gains in pastoral production in that regard, and you control all your... your well, you're just you suppress your roos and your cats and foxes. So I think it's a win-win overall financially as well as looking at the biodiversity issues. And can you describe how big your land is and your neighbours' properties? Okay, well, we're sort of between the smaller country up towards Longridge where the places are 40 or 50,000 acres. We've got 130,000 acres. But once you go out behind us, you get into the really big channel country properties which they they discuss the size of their places in thousands of square kilometres. And do your neighbouring properties, and I take it most of them do use the aerial baiting, is there a choice these days with exclusion fencing, uh, marema dogs, etc.? Are they a viable choice? Uh, I don't know if fencing is a viable choice. In some of the sheep areas it may be, but Number one, it's very expensive to put fences up, and number two, you've got to maintain them forevermore, which is a very expensive exercise. I think there'll be more and more role for guarding animals, and not only in the sheep country. I think there'll be a role for using the guarding animals when, for instance, you've got a paddock full of cows that are about to calve, and if you had them with them, it would protect them from any dingo losses until such time as they got enough size that they weren't worried about them. Do you feel people in your area are changing attitudes slightly towards not using 1080 poison? No, I don't think that's happening a lot yet in this part of the world because there's been oh, it's very, very much a political decision, but all dingoes in Queensland are being called wild dogs and there's so-called war on wild dogs. But it's really interesting. There's a paper came out about 10 days ago actually Redescribing the dingo as Canis dingo, which makes it very firmly an Australian native animal, and I think we need to treat it as such and work out ways to actually utilise the good sides of it and handle the downsides. Thank you very much for your time, Angus. That's fine, Emma. I'm a large. 
beef producer, well, on a large property in WA. Why have you opted not to use 1080 baiting on your property? Uh, simply because I don't see much point in controlling the dogs that I have here. The baiting programs seem to be ineffective and I've encountered dogs where I know that there's lots of baits and I've done baiting and it didn't seem to be working. I only deployed the baits for about three years but before that the property had been continuously baited. It was taking me time and consequently money to bait and I wasn't seeing any useful effect from the baiting. How long has it been since you've stopped baiting? About five years. And what have the changes been? Well, I've got a lot less kangaroos and wallabies that I used to have and that's meant that I'm growing more grass and since I've grown more grass, I've noticed that any dingo attacks on calves seems to have stopped. I've, I, I haven't seen a dingo attack on a calf for a long, long time. So basically there's been net benefits for you? Yeah, for the livestock and for the country as well. The country is in better order, so I've spoken to other people who hypothesise that because the country is in better order, there's more little critters and things that the dingoes can target for their own meals. Do you find that a lot of neighbouring properties are considering stopping 1080 baiting? I've spoken to some people who talk about it, but none of my neighbours have stopped baiting, no. Is that a problem on your property, that your neighbours still bait? Not really because of the size, but one of the things I do notice is, I, is that I actually see more dogs on my neighbours' properties than what I do on mine. On your neighbours' properties where they do bait, there's more dogs? There seems to be, yeah. Today I'm Dave Graham and I'm the host of Dingo Wild Dog at War. I used to be a big-time sheep farmer. Um, Did you ever use 1080? Of course. Okay. Absolutely. Are you still using the bait? No, no, no we don't use 1080 okay. bait anymore. As a farmer, you look at the best options for your own unique situation, and 1080 just doesn't doesn't service our needs. I, I've lost too many of my own dogs to 10, 1080 baits, and I've lost uh, one of my best maremas to a 1080 bait. And um, I was there the day that my mother um, lost her her best friend, and uh, it was it was heartbreaking. It really does make you challenge your values and make you challenge um, where your priorities are and, and that's just why we personally don't don't use them and each each farmer I mean has a has a whole gamut of things at his disposal and um, and 1080 is one of those things and uh, yeah for me personally I'll, I'll never touch it again just from my own life experience with losing those valuable workmates and best friends that, that are the dogs that that help us manage our land. And then we also now employ Marema sheep dogs and they guard the sheep and that seems to be working much better in our situation. Dogs on, on mobs of that 2,000 each and a uh, single dog per 2,000 and they handle that pretty pretty damn good. Okay. So, um, you know, our, our losses went down massively as soon as we introduced the dog. That was a snippet from a program Freedom of Species produced Last year on 1080 Poison and Pests, the link will be on the podcast page for this show today. You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. We will now continue with our friendly fight club for ferals via Skype with Dr. Arian Wallach from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project. 
The Dingo Four Biodiversity Project is a science and conservation initiative conducting research into the ecological role of dingoes, our apex predator. They offer a new vision of conservation in which promoting dingoes replaces lethal control of introduced species for the enhancement of biodiversity. Today's show was inspired by the project's Black Dog series in which Arian switched partridges and pear trees in the 12 days before Christmas and switched them for many introduced species. Last week we talked about foxes, cats, rabbits, camels, wild boar and goats. We learnt we judge introduced species way too swiftly and harshly, not taking into context what else is going on in the environment. For example, persecution of the apex predator, fire burning management, livestock overgrazing, manipulated water points not taking into account their ecological role, which is a complex web of costs and benefits for native animals also. Today we will be appreciating deer, brumbies, cane toads, dogs and weeds. I included weeds because, as Aaron will explain, they are related to how we are treating our predators. Well, let's go on to the magnificent-looking deer that you have on your series. Is this a particular kind of deer? How many species of deer do we have in Australia that are labelled feral? Well, all deer in Australia are feral. I mean, they're they're not native to Australia, and there are, there are six species. And it's probably it is just from lack of knowledge on my part that I sort of lumped them all together in one group. I can say individually, though, that three of the six, so 50% of the species that we have, are threatened with extinction in their native range. So the picture that you mentioned that I used on the site is a sandbar deer. They're threatened. There's also a javan russa and hog deer. So of the six species in Australia, three of them are threatened. What is obvious, of course, is that all of these species have co-evolved with large carnivores. And, of course, from I'm taking a view that it's important prey to live alongside their predators. It's important for the ecosystems. It's probably important for them. It's important for the carnivores. And all of these deer have co-evolved with large carnivores. So the ecological role of deer are strongly influenced by the presence or absence of their predators. There is evidence that human hunting can have suppressive effects on some deer in some situations, but there's also research that shows that that the effect of human hunting does not exactly mimic the effects generated by top predators because what apex predators do, well, is more than just kill deer. And there's a big difference between a human that's going hunting on the weekend to presumably Pleistocene humans that lived as hunter-gatherers. But certainly apex predators do more than just kill deer. They communicate with them. So we know that deer will respond to predators through stress responses that can affect even their reproduction so they, they may even slow down their reproduction in the presence of predators. They'll increase their vigilance, which affects their nutrition. So instead of constantly having their, their head down in the ground eating, 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 they have to keep looking up 
and scan their, the horizon to look for predators. And they'll also shift where they're moving. So they'll prefer, sometimes deer will prefer to live amongst humans so that they can get away from predators. And we don't really know what the effects of dingoes on deer are, but they're likely to be very similar and very substantial to the effects of wolves on deer because dingoes are essentially wolves. Now, unlike most introduced species, deer are actually provided with some legal protection thanks to the hunting organizations that have been advocating for their management as a resource rather than as a pest. Now, I have a problem with considering wildlife from this viewpoint as a resource, as a game animal, but I certainly prefer that to the considering wildlife as a pest. I would say, though, that this has provided many benefits for including to the welfare of deer because there is a group advocating for them. But I would argue that deer should also be regarded for their intrinsic and ecological values. And again, also in consideration that some of the deer that are here are, are threatened in their native ranges. Importantly, hunting organizations overseas can also be powerful lobby groups alongside farmers that advocate for killing predators. And that's not something that I would want to see happen here. I'm hoping that Australian hunters will use the opportunity to develop a, a more evolved ethic for the treatment of deer and their predators. But as an ecologist, I'm calling for a greater consideration of the ecological roles deer now play in Australia's modern ecosystem and the effects of dingoes on their populations. So, uh, for example, one study found that Hog deer provide major ecological services, seed dispersers, for both native and introduced plants in Australia. I also would call for caution in trying to eradicate species from their introduced ranges when their native ranges are jeopardized. jeopardized. And this is something that is repeating themselves. It's surprising how many species that we regard as pests here are endangered in their native range. And in particular, there's been no evidence that these deer eradication programs have provided any anticipated benefits to native species. There have been several studies uh, in New Zealand, for example, showing that there's been very little, if any, vegetation recovery following control of deer. I also think that it's very important to consider the welfare of deer and of all these introduced animals when, when we make these calls for control and eradication. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. We are chatting with Dr. Arian Wallach from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project, who is taking us on a frolic with the ferals via Skype, urging us to take a friendlier look at our introduced species and appreciate their role in the landscape. To a very popular one now, the Brumby. Yeah, well, the Brumby is really wonderful in the sense that they're the only introduced species that really has a strong social protection, protect their limit to what you're allowed to do to a horse in Australia, thanks to this. A lot of the other species just don't have that kind of support. And I certainly believe that Australia is a wilder and more magnificent place, thanks to the beauty of Brumbies. The support that they receive, the protection Although it is significant, they are still persecuted severely 
but when that happens, there can be social and even legal ramifications. So, for example, in response to the Brumby call in the, in the late 80s, the International Court of Justice for Animal Rights tried and convicted members of the Australian government. Now, this is not, has, this is not sort of thing that's been done for cane toads, for example. The survival of horses ha- um, is tightly linked with human activity. So humans have driven their extinction across their native range. And today, the only truly native wild horse population is a tiny reintroduced herd in Mongolia, which originates from a few horses kept in a zoo. And they're probably also somewhat hybridized, those uh, Przewalski horses. But wild horses have also flourished where they have escaped domestication, both of and introduced ranges. So the Mustang, for example, of North America is essentially a revitalization of the wild horses that went extinct there. There are studies around the globe that document the importance of large predators and limiting feral horse or wild horse densities, particularly through their predation on foal. A strong example of that is for mountain lions and wolves. Uh, in North America. But we do know that dingoes also kill horses. Uh, We uh, observed that in the cattle station where we were living for two years where a wild foal was was hunted by dingoes successfully. In the presence of large predators, but also in their absence in some cases, wild horse populations do tend to be strikingly stable. And under these conditions, they perform a variety of important ecological functions, such as, again, maintaining a mosaic of habitat types, potentially reducing fire, uh, improving soil fertility, and they can benefit plants by pruning and dispersing seeds. But again, really, there, if we were to snap our fingers and make all of these feral horses disappear from the world, all we would have left would be that tiny population in Mongolia of Przewalski horses, and maybe if you snapped your, t- your fingers, they would be gone too, because I think they're slightly hybridized, and if you want to be really follow the real classic definition, then maybe they're not worthy of conservation either. Of course, I would say that it's something that we should be very grateful for, the ability of domestic horses to go feral, and they have essentially gone west the globe. The one species I think is in the most need of public relations spin is the cane toad. Yes, I would love to be the PR, be on the PR team for cane toads that you're referring to. They are blamed for far too much and they are hailed for far too little. And there's no doubt that these amphibians are now an integral part of Australia's beauty. And you should check out... There was, well, it's on the Dingo for Biodiversity site, and there's a link there to some beautiful photography done of the cane toad, bringing out their inner beauty, so to speak. The reason why people are pissed off at cane toads is it's really it's because they have toxic glands on their backs, which are which can kill animals if they eat them. So the the toads are essentially guilty by being someone else's food, but having these toxic glands. And there have been quite a few cases where as toads move into a new area, the predators, amphibian predators, um, some of them uh, locally and severely, but 
cane toads have never been known to cause any extinctions. And although these declines, local declines, can be very severe, they tend to be temporary. Now, it's a beautiful example with the cane toad because it does show how life is remarkably adaptable. And toads have become an engine of evolution in Australia. Some native snakes have undergone rapid adaptation to cane toads. They, some of them have, have been reducing the size of their mouths relative to the size of their bodies so that, that they are now able to tolerate the amount of toxin ingested. So that's snakes that will just eat the whole toad. But other species, including native birds, they figure things out and they learn how to hunt cane toads in a safe way by avoiding the toxic glands. So they might eat the feet or they might flip them and eat the belly in a safe way. And other predators, they learn that this is an animal that they shouldn't eat, and they just hunt something else. So these extraordinary examples of rapid evolution have resulted in the recovery of native predator populations from initial declines. And there's been no evidence that humans trying to control toads have been in any way helpful. What we know about toads is that they are opportunistic predators that can help regulate potentially eruptive invertebrates and small vertebrates. As prey, they can benefit a range of predators once, of course, the adaptation, um, both behavioral and um, morphological adaptation to their toxin occurs. But like any species, ecological benefits come from sustainable densities, and um, so biodiversity can increase when the predators of cane toads are abundant. Now, as a uh, someone who's completely hooked on dingoes, I must have a way to connect dingoes to cane toads, and what could that possibly be? And I do believe that dingoes can influence cane toads, although indirectly. So we know that large predators regulate and influence species both directly when they hunt them, but also indirectly by promoting the diversity of their predators and competitors. So when dingoes suppress meadow predators like foxes and cats, meadow predators are smaller predators. And when they suppress herbivores like rabbits and kangaroos, they can indirectly benefit the populations of a variety of other species, and some of these are toad predators. So essentially what we want is biodiversity. That is, we want a rich number of species that are all interacting and all providing both costs and benefits to each other and keeping each other at, at levels that enable the highest possible number of species to coexist in the same area. And the cane toad is a fantastic example of how ecosystems can and do adapt. So the cane toad is in areas, would you agree, it's erupted and causing damage? There, well, again, that's, that's where it becomes, it becomes a bit difficult. There, there are areas where there are relatively high densities of cane toads, I think they tend to be localized, at least what I've seen can be localized. Um, what we consider to be harm, which is when predators um, eat them and die of, of the, the poison that they ingest, this is something that eventually predators figure out, and then the predators themselves limit the densities of, of toads. There's very little information about what toads what sort of ecological effects toads have on their prey. So how do toads influence insects, for example? We don't know much about that at all. But we certainly do know that there is a large variety of native predators that eat successfully. And again, if you ask them to vote on the question, should we eradicate toads, they would probably say no. 
we're up to a section on weeds in your feral blog. Would you like to comment on the weeds? Again, I've sort of clumped a huge variety, not even sure how many of uh, plants have been introduced. Uh, Plants on the move, that's essentially what weeds are or what we think of them sometimes. Um, And I'm interested in how plants and predators interact. Now, we do know that some plants can form monocultures. Some of these monocultures can be, they can be flammable, they can be irritating, they can be thorny. But generally, monocultures are formed because many of the local plants are unable to flourish under certain extreme, unusual disturbances in the area. There's a lot of a lot of people think that introduced species outcompete native species, but there's very little evidence that that is correct. Usually, what we're finding is that is a high grazing pressure, for example, by livestock, by killing predators and, and creating higher densities of wild herbivores or through burning and clearing and otherwise disturbing the soil, those sorts of effects only allow a fewer number of species to survive. Those that do well um, in these areas just have special adaptations to these disturbances. So, for example, uh, high grazing pressure can facilitate communities dominated by plants that are not so palatable to other herbivores, and some of these are introduced plants. But overall, we know that plant diversity forms a what we call a biotic resistance that limits the competitive dominance of any one species. So even in systems in which introduced species are competitively superior, coexistence can develop through the complexity of interactions that form ecosystems. And large predators can help restore a more diverse plant community in which monocultures are less likely to form. We also know that weeding does not promote native plants, but weeds do. There are many examples of native plants and animals forming dependencies on introduced plants. One fantastic example, which is is the lantana shrub, which provides a broad variety of benefits by promoting the regeneration of some native plant species, improving soil retention, habitat for native animals, and they also have a range of medical uses. Generally, weeds are a fantastic benefit. They increase primary productivity. They capture carbon. They feed livestock. They feed wild herbivores. They shelter animals. They shelter small animals and large animals. They provide food and medicine and employment, and they they hold soil steady, and they promote native plants, and they improve biodiversity, and on and on and on and on. So having disdain for weeds seems sort of silly. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. We are chatting with Dr. Arian Wallach from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project, who is taking us on a frolic with the ferals via Skype, urging us to take a friendlier look at our introduced species and appreciate their role in the landscape. On to the star of the show. Tell us about the wild dog. Ah, yes. The mysterious and mystical creature called wild dog. The wild dog is mystic dog gone feral. And compared to dingoes, they are larger and more ferocious. They have little fear of humans. They breed rapidly and they kill many more livestock. 
And apart from all this, they also probably do not exist. There is no evidence demonstrating the existence of a feral dog population. If they do exist, I would say they should be considered a new species. Now, we've been taught a lot of feral species, cows and donkeys and horses and cats and pigs, but dogs have not been proven to be able to go feral. What does that actually mean, to be feral? A feral animal is one that has a history of domestication but is subsequently reverted to its wild form and is living and reproducing, importantly, independently of humans. A lot of a, a variety of animals can do this, but dogs are unique. Dogs are human symbionts. So some dogs live in people's homes and even beds. My dog lives sort of in my bed. My dog is on my bed right now. <clears throat> but other dogs, particularly primitive, more primitive pariah breeds, they can live in the outskirts of town and have little personal relationships with humans. But these are not feral dogs. These are dogs. Dingoes, on the, on the other hand, can and do, I mean, sorry, dingoes can, they can interbreed with dogs. But there's nothing special about dingo-dog hybrids. Many species of large canids can hybridize. Gray wolves, eastern wolves, coyotes, golden jackals, Ethiopian wolves, and domestic dogs can all hybridize with each other. And generally, this hybridization is triggered when human persecution disrupts the canid social structure or significantly reduces their population size. But when predator control stops, these species naturally reform, reform separate populations. A dingo, what we can call a dingo in Australia, is any canid that is reproducing in the wild of Australia independently of humans. There are no feral dogs. There are only homeless, lost, and roaming dogs. I believe that we need to make Australia a much kinder place for both species by living, leaving dingoes alone and providing the care our best friends deserve. It's nature's way of telling you something's wrong. Nature's way of telling you in a song. It's nature's way of receiving you. It's nature's way of retrieving you. That was a tune by Rodrigo and Gabriella called Nature's Way. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. That wraps up our chat with Dr. Arian Wallach from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project. Arian has also just joined the Centre for Compassionate Conservation in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, and her research will further focus on how large apex predators help biodiversity flourish in Australia. Wallach says, The focus of my research is to investigate more compassionate alternatives that provide better outcomes both for threatened wildlife and the welfare of introduced species, specifically by enabling apex predators such as dingoes to limit population eruptions of non-native species. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive 
and making a difference. I'm Charlie. I'm from Sydney Fox Rescue. I actually set up Sydney Fox Rescue uh, about three and a half years ago now. I also rescue various other species of animal. Recently, we've actually been working here at the rescue on establishing ISWEL, which is the Introduced Species Welfare and Education League. So expanding our efforts from foxes to other introduced species that perhaps fall by the wayside and aren't catered to by other animal welfare organisations. So at the moment, we're sort of taking on a, a few different species each year as we expand the program. So recently, wild dogs and dingoes, which are actually legislated as a feral animal in New South Wales um, and in many states in Australia. We're also working with hares and uh, also with uh, three different species of deer. Sydney Fox Rescue for the last couple of years has been a a program that works with orphaned and injured uh, foxes in need. It was established, I guess, primarily because when I sort of was asked to step in and and assist with my, my first a young rescue fox, Robin. There was no established organisation that would work with foxes and we were sort of told that he wasn't a companion animal so therefore couldn't be taken by someone like the RSPCA but he also wasn't a native. So he doesn't fall under sort of companion animal legislation so he can't be cared for by people like the RSPCA but he also isn't a native and so he isn't under wise duty of care either and um, for that reason I guess uh, I decided to try and try and raise this first fox that we had and, and realise that he was a pretty special and, and, and unique animal and I hadn't realised perhaps how many foxes there were in need of assistance um, and we thought if there's a way that we can take these animals out of the wild and desex them and work with them and find them places that where they can be housed in captivity and actually do some conservation work as well, then we're sort of, it's a win-win for the foxes and also for natives as well. And at the end of the day, they didn't decide to come here. It wasn't their choice. It was something that our ancestors did in bringing them here as an introduced species and they shouldn't have to suffer the consequences of inhumane treatment because of that decision that was made for them. The protection, like do these introduced species have any welfare protection whatsoever? Like any animal, they, they, they have some protections under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, but they're pretty minimal. When, when an animal isn't a companion animal, essentially being a cat or a dog, it starts to lose any protections that it might otherwise have. And it, also not being a native as well, they can be sort of subject to a lot of control methods, which you know, vary in how humane they are. And uh, they're sort of not really catered to by other um, animal welfare organisations, which can mean they sort of fall by the wayside a little bit sometimes, which is, I guess, why we we exist, to try and step in and and advocate for them and change that. So I guess they're privy to a lot of... Um, landholder kind of legal requirements in dealing with That's it, that's it, yeah, they they are. So being legislated as now a a pest species, foxes in particular, um, but also animals like rabbits, wild pigs um, and things like that, uh, landowners might actually be obligated to control their numbers. So they might be obligated to use things like 1080 bait. They might be obligated to go uh, to sort of allow hunters and, and, and things onto the property or government organisations to base and things like that, whether they actually want to participate in that or not. It, it makes it a culture, doesn't it, to treat them? Yeah, it does. Tell us about how patchy the legislation is when it comes to rescuing all these different introduced species. Yeah, look, I mean, there's some bizarre gaps in the legislation and things like that. For example, any wild-born rabbit is illegal for us to rescue or to keep in captivity, but your pet rabbit is fine. And interestingly, a European hare is fine. So while you can keep a European hare, 
or a domestic rabbit, any rabbit of wild-type appearance, to quote the legislation, or born in the wild is illegal to keep in captivity, um, regardless of whether it's sort of come into care as a, as a young animal in need, it's illegal to keep, whereas you can have a hare or a domestic rabbit. Confusing. That's, that's where lawyers come in handy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 quite patchy and, and, and sometimes difficult to understand where the logic behind this sort of legislation comes from because it's certainly not helping animals or increasing animal welfare. What activities were you involved in and how has that changed because of the pest control order? Sure. Well, over the last couple of years, we've rehomed over 100 foxes. That is with private owners, so as well as uh, wildlife parks and zoos. So up until the end of 2014, um, it was possible as a, as a private individual to gain a permit if you sort of did the appropriate training with us, you installed an enclosure, you were ready and sort of willing to take on a fox, um, you, you could do so. Um, and that was what our majority of our work was doing, was, was taking injured and orphaned animals that were in need um, and rehoming them with members of the community. And because the legislation has now changed, only commercial permit holders, that being wildlife parks, zoos, um, universities, research establishments, are actually now able to get permits to keep captive foxes and, and private owners, while anyone who adopted prior to the legislation has been allowed to keep those animals, the local land services and the Department of Primary Industries are now refusing to issue any further permits, which has really limited what we can do because all we can do at this stage in regards to assisting new cases of orphaned or injured foxes is to try and place them with a wildlife park, to try and refer them on because we can no longer take them ourselves or refer them to private owners in the same way, which I suspect is meaning that a lot of individuals or members of the public are not reporting foxes that are in need because they are concerned that they might be euthanized. And we're sort of also concerned that it might lead to widespread illegal ownership by really quite irresponsible owners if there's no body to oversee it, which is if we can't oversee the ownership process and the adoption process, people aren't going to seek help if they're worried that the, the animals in their care might be euthanized. What happens now if, say, I find, I stumble across a an injured fox? What what legally is... Uh, yeah, look, legally all you can do is take it to the nearest sort of vet clinic and you're quite limited even in whether you're legally allowed to transport. What the, the local land services expect is that now any member of the public finding a fox will either take it to be euthanized or try and find a commercial permit holder, so someone like a wildlife park or a zoo to, ta- to take on that animal. And there just aren't enough of those commercial places to cover it, I guess. And unfortunately, it's also simply not the case that all members of the public are going to be willing to take an animal that they know will be put to sleep into a veterinary clinic. And probably all vets are not willing to actually euthanize them either. So, Why have they brought in this legislation? Superficially, what they're saying sort of to the... I guess, on the public face of things, is that they've brought in this legislation because they're concerned that the fox control in New South Wales is lacking. They're saying that the pest control order is to try and enforce landholders to better participate in fox control. And they're also concerned that the private ownership of foxes is changing the public attitude of foxes. So perhaps what they're not saying as much outwardly, but certainly what they've said to us, is that... um, when people have that mental shift and they realise that a you know that a fox can be this very loving, very affectionate companion that can have this you know deep connection with people and with other animals, 
um, they're concerned that that will limit their ability to use lethal control methods or control methods that, that might not be considered humane. So I think Mark Beckoff famously says, you know, the question that you have to ask yourself with animals is, you know, would you do it to your dog? And I think that they're concerned that if people put start putting foxes in the same category as dogs, that they, they wouldn't do some of the things that the government you know, requires landowners to do to foxes. So, you know, you might not use 1080 bait on your dog, um, but would you use it on a fox? And I think they don't want that that shift in mentality around feral animals, in particular foxes, to happen. So you've you've touched on it already, but can you tell us about Iswell, what it is, why you think it's necessary? Sure, absolutely. And what you're setting out to achieve, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for us, a big part of it is a pushback against this new legislation that's sort of come into place for foxes. It's it's us saying that we, uh, as an organisation, won't stand by and let the government just decide that this animal's life is worth less than this other animal. And at, at the end of the day, there are many introduced species in this country that we do consider to be valuable and that we do sort of really protect and that the law protects, like cats and dogs and livestock, um, for example. But then there's this other whole group of animals that are demonised as feral animals that are really being left behind and that nobody is looking out for. And that's you know animals like foxes and animals like deer and animals like hares and rabbits and pigs and there's only a limited amount of these species that we can legally work with but we're going to sort of do everything we can to advocate to change that over time and and to try and be a a safe haven and a refuge for animals that other organizations aren't there for and aren't sort of advocating on behalf of because Ultimately, as I said earlier, these animals didn't come here by any choice of their own. These animals were brought here by our ancestors largely for hunting. Um, and now that they have actually survived and thrived in, in this environment, we've now decided that, that you know only these sort of lethal and often ineffective control methods are the way to go and, and sort of forgotten um, the necessity for humane treatment for all animals and not just for this selective group of animals that we um, that we like, I guess. How are you setting out to achieve this re-education, I guess, of the general public? Is it, I understand, a sanctuary? Yeah, yep, yep. So a big part of it for us is getting commercial permits for our rescue so that people, those commercial permits will actually enable us to have people come and visit and spend time with the animals. I think that there's nothing really more effective in terms of education and actually getting to have a relationship with these animals and see what they're like. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what foxes might be like to interact with and I think for people to be able to come and spend time with them um, is going to be a big part of that shift and a big part of that education process and I think that that's what the government is trying to actually stop, is trying to stop people getting to see foxes. And so we want to be able to have people come to the sanctuary and and spend time with them. And and we're actually hoping that by the end of January next year that we might be able to do that. Another thing that the commercial exhibit permits will allow us to do is to actually go and do education in classrooms and to do school-based education and, and talks with local community groups. I think that that's another really important part with animal education is starting at a young age and and getting sort of that idea across that that all life is valuable and that 
all animals deserve humane treatment and I think that sometimes the best place to start with that is with kids. We also would like to sort of run school holiday programs and things like that with the same sort of idea in mind. I think social media these days is also a massive, massive part of how we get that message across. So just having active social media, the, the ability to be able to do interviews and blog posts and videos and really get that message right across the country, um, particularly into rural areas where perhaps the stigma is the strongest for these animals. Tell us about the animals that you actually have on your property at the at the moment. You can share some of them. Yeah, certainly. So so we have um we have twelve resident foxes. Um we also currently have ten rescued dingoes or I suppose wild dogs. Some of them are only part dingo, but they're they're um we sort of consider them to all be dingoes, I suppose. We have one rescued deer. We've got a, a rescue pig, um, quite a lot of rescued feral cats and kittens. We do a, a lot of work in Sydney with feral cats and kittens, um, socialising and, and rehoming them and placing them with families. We have our rescue hare, Moppet. So Moppet was a little hand-raised hare that was found um, up on the North Shore in Sydney. She's pretty special. Yeah, that, that's about it for us at the moment. So how can people get involved and, and support your work? Yeah, well, look, the, the big thing for us is, as I said, social media. So getting online and checking out our webpage and, and also our Facebook page. The Facebook page for, for Iswell at the moment, it's all sort of going through our main Sydney Fox Rescue page. So ultimately, we will have a separate page for Iswell as well. So we're pretty easy to find if you type in Sydney Fox Rescue. And we're always, always looking for sponsors for the animals. Sponsorship means sort of, I guess, the opportunity to come and spend some time with your sponsored animal, get little regular updates. You can bring treats and things like that and, and obviously sort of make a regular donation nation toward the, the upkeep of that animal. We're always running fundraising drives as well, which tend to be promoted through the Facebook page again. And we're actually having a launch night on the 12th of December for Iswell itself. So we're going to have musical performers. We'll have uh, dancers and jazz performers, a pianist. We've got a, a hula hoop specialist and some acrobats. Um, and uh, that should be a really fantastic opportunity for people to come along and meet us and, and some of our animals as well. Oh, great. So where do we get tickets for that one? Yeah, so Iswell, the, the best place to go, again, is through our Facebook page and into the events page, and uh, there's a link to the tickets there. So it's going to be at the Newtown Neighbourhood Centre um, on the 12th of December at 6.30pm, and it is family-friendly, so it'll, it'll be a dry event, but we will have mocktails and, and vegan catering on the night. Excellent. So it's family and feral-friendly. That's <laughs> it, family and feral-friendly. That's I couldn't have said it better myself. How much are the tickets? Uh, the tickets start at $15 for concession tickets and go up from there. So we do try to do student prices and um, and family prices as well. So Excellent. And all the money, all the proceeds will go to the Introduced Species Welfare and Education League. Uh, absolutely. And particularly toward getting our sanctuary set up and ready to have those sort of commercial permits, meaning that people can come and visit us and spend time with the animals here. Thank you so much for highlighting this whole area of um, introduced species welfare and starting this fantastic uh, Oh, no worries. It's been a pleasure as always to talk to you. Oh, thanks, Charlie. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show. I'm Claire Mann, vegan psychologist and the co-founder of the Sydney Vegan Club 30 Day Vegan Challenge. 
Are you a vegan who wants to communicate veganism but can't find the right words? Maybe you get tongue-tied when others challenge your vegan values. And maybe you get overwhelmed with emotions when talking about veganism. Well, now we have a solution. Vegan Voices is a smartphone app designed to help you communicate the most difficult of vegan issues. With tips, techniques and communication tools to fluently talk about what's important to you, you finish every conversation knowing you've spoken your truth, you've got people thinking and more likely to say, tell me more. Now, how does Vegan Voices work? There are two aspects, video training and communications resources. Video training. Each day for 30 days, a three to five minute video unlocks, revealing proven ways to communicate veganism without people resisting, criticizing or ignoring the message. Each video addresses typical issues vegans face. A written overview of the video content is provided together with a key communication tip related to the issue. Each tip is then used to respond to other questions. For example, the tip for responding to where do you get your protein can be used to talk about health or food values. Resources. Having learned and practiced responding to a specific issue, the resources section has additional materials to send to people after your discussion. It means you don't have to remember everything. Just get people interested and willing to receive more information. The resources section has videos, articles, books and links on typical vegan issues that can be forwarded easily by text, email or social media directly from your phone. Now why only one video a day? As a psychologist, I know that even with the best intentions, we only repeat actions to solve our problems if they become habit. If you had two hours of video training with 30 examples, you'd probably put it off and never remember and apply the skills in everyday life. By committing five minutes each day to becoming a better vegan voice, you stay on track with your learning and better outcomes from conversations about veganism reinforce your desire to learn more. As you experience more positive results about veganism, you'll feel less stressed and anxious and want to learn more. When you've accessed all the videos, you can regularly watch specific videos that best match the vegan issues you want to discuss. To access this free resource, go to veganpsychologist.com, leave your email and be advised of its imminent release before the end of December 2015. One community announcement. On Saturday the 19th of December, Melbourne Pig Save and Melbourne Chicken Save are joining forces for a rally in the Burke Street Mall, 12 to 2 p.m., that is 12 to 2 p.m. Burke Street Mall on Saturday, 19th December, uh, combining forces on behalf of chicken, pigs and turkeys in the food production system. So please uh, make that a day in the city and help them out to spread the word on the conditions that pigs, chickens and turkeys are actually in in the food production system. It would absolutely horrify people in the general public if their pet dog was subject to the same conditions. And, you know, pigs, chickens and turkeys are sentient beings just as our pet dogs are. So if they were serving up golden retrievers instead of Christmas ham, um, there would be an absolute uproar and there's really no difference in sentience there. So please join them for that day. That wraps up the program for today. I'd like to thank very much Charlie from Sydney, Fox Rescue, Aaron Wallach from the Dingo for Biodiversity Project. And I will put links to their websites on the podcast page for this program. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter and the website. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. 
Taking us out is a tune by Vegan Smythe called I Will Be Their Voice. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.